Well, this morning, I am beginning a new sermon series called The Power of One Life. Uh, It's something where every week this summer, I'm going to be looking at a minor biblical character, someone I can preach on in one Sunday. Something that it's nice to do during the summer when people come and go, just to have standalone sermons every Sunday. So every week, we're going to look at one individual, the impact that they had for better or worse in this world as they followed or rebelled against God. Uh, Because truly, no matter how ordinary we may feel, uh, once we've given our lives to the Lord, he can use us to do extraordinary things. So this Sunday, we're going to look at the story of a man named Ananias, whose story is found in Acts 9. There's actually two Ananiases in the book of Acts. We're not going to look at Ananias and Sapphira. That's a different story. This is a man named Ananias uh, who had an impact on the life of Saul, who became known as Paul. Quick background, Acts is the story of the early church. Uh, Jesus ascends to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit to be within his believers. They go and start to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his life, death, and resurrection in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But unfortunately, these Christians are seen as blasphemers, uh, as people who are heretics saying wrong things about God by the Jewish people. And these fanatical uh, Religious leaders try to round up Christians to persecute them, to kill them, to have them thrown in prison. And one of the leaders of those Pharisees is a man named Saul, who becomes known by his Greek name, Paul, to us. And we're going to read Acts 9, which is the story of Saul's conversion and the role that Ananias played in that. So let me read Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? This name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. We also hear from Paul's perspective a little bit more about his encounter with Ananias in Acts 22, 12 to 16. So I want to read that as well. This is Paul speaking. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts, that you would open our ears, that we would hear and understand what this means, what it means for our lives today. Lord, reveal yourself in a deeper way to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking back at the story of Saul and Ananias, I want to highlight three things about this passage, about Saul's conversion and the role Ananias played in it. First and foremost, I wanted to make sure I highlight this, that salvation or conversion is a supernatural work of God. Before we get to Ananias, I want to look at Saul's conversion here. Salvation refers to being rescued, saved from the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against a holy God. That's salvation, that we've been saved from sin, saved from hell, saved from eternal separation. And you might think of salvation as having a human component and a divine component to it. On the human side, there's two main aspects of salvation, repentance and faith. So from a human perspective, there's two moves or two sides of the same coin. Repentance, where we turn from our sin and self-centeredness. And faith, where we put our faith in Jesus, that believing that by his death and resurrection, that he paid the penalty for our sins. So you can see it as two sides of the same coin. We turn from our own sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus. And that's, from a human perspective, salvation. Repent and believe. Repent and put your faith in Jesus. But there's a whole divine aspect to salvation that you may not see with your own eyes, but the Bible talks about what is happening from a heavenly perspective, when we repent in faith, when we repent and have faith in Jesus. And there's three words in particular, the words justification, adoption, and regeneration. So I want to help you understand what is going on from a divine perspective when we put our faith in Jesus. The first is justification, which you could define as the legal act in which God thinks, the legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins is forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is God as the judge declaring us not guilty. Our punishment, our sin is put on Christ on the cross and his righteousness, his right relationship with God, his perfect record is given to us. And so when God sees us, we are justified, declared not guilty by God the judge. That's the first divine element of salvation. One of the, I'm going to limit myself to one verse for each of these. There's lots of verses, of course, I could point to, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums this one up. Well, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus on the cross takes our sin and gives us his righteousness, his perfect record, so that when God looks at us, he sees us through his son as perfect in his sight. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? That all your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. That Jesus took the punishment that you deserved on the cross, and you are justified, declared not guilty. So again, from a human perspective, we repent and put our faith in Jesus. But from a divine perspective, there's three important things that are happening. First of all is justification. God is judged, declaring us not guilty. The second thing is adoption. And adoption is the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. This is God as Father. So when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not just that he justifies you and forgives your sin and declares you not guilty, but he also adopts you as his child, brings you into his family. This is God as Father. Again, of many verses I could pick, John 1, 12 to 13 is a good one, where it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so it's, it's not necessarily accurate to say that everyone in the world is a child of God. You know, everyone in the world is, is created by God. But when you come to faith in Jesus, you are adopted as his child. And you no longer have to relate to God as some being up in the sky, right? Or as the judge. But now you relate to him as father. The Bible uses the term Abba, this familiar term, Papa. That that's how you relate with that level of intimacy with the God of the universe. So again, from a human perspective, salvation involves repenting, turning from faith, turning from sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus. But from a godly, from a divine perspective, there's justification, there's adoption, and then there's also regeneration, which is the act of God by which he imparts spiritual, eternal life to us. This is God as heart surgeon. You might... Look at Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, where he prophesies this. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's a lot in that verse. That is an incredible passage there. But this is God as heart surgeon that when you come to faith in me, he's saying, I will remove this heart of stone that, no law, that doesn't know me, that doesn't respond to me, that doesn't want me, and I will put a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will give you eternal life, my Holy Spirit, that you will know me and desire me in a way that you never did before. So when I say that salvation is a supernatural work of God, this is what we're talking about here. It's not like signing up for a club, right? Salvation is not like signing up for a country club where you just sign on the line and now you're a member. That's not what becoming a Christian is. It's not just a human decision. It is a supernatural work of God by which he puts a new heart and a new spirit in you. And you see the world differently and you see God differently and you see yourself differently because you no longer have the old nature, but you are a new creation with a new heart, a new spirit. When you look at the conversion of Saul, it's obvious, right? I mean, he was anti-God, anti-Jesus, going down to persecute the believers, and God stopped him, and Jesus blinded him and turned his life around. And it's obvious in Saul's story that it's a supernatural work of God. 
Most of our stories are not that dramatic, but it doesn't matter. If you were saved as a seven-year-old at vacation Bible school, if you were saved, gave your heart to Jesus last week, it is a supernatural work of God. Just as much as it was for Saul, that God has replaced this heart of stone with a heart of flesh, with a new spirit. Let me share a couple passages that highlight this supernatural work of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Pay attention to the contrasts in this passage. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So what's the contrast in this passage? It's not you once were a bad person, but now you've made a decision to be a good person. It's not that once you were ignorant and now you are smart, and wise. The contrast is that once you were dead spiritually, and now you are alive spiritually, that God made us alive. How many of you chose to be born? How many of you chose the parents you were going to be born to and the place you were going to be born? It wasn't your choice, was it? You didn't make yourself alive. And in the same way, he's saying, this is our status we are all spiritually dead and we cannot make ourselves alive. But God, by his supernatural work of salvation, has given us spiritual life, regenerated our heart, put his Holy Spirit in us. Or how about this one? John chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Once again, Pay attention to the metaphor that's being used here. Just like in Ephesians, he's using the metaphor of birth. That no one is born a Christian. You've probably heard expressions like, just because you live in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Right? Just because you go to church does not make you a Christian. Just because you're born into a Christian family does not make you a Christian. He's speaking here to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who would have trusted in the fact that he was a child of Abraham to make him right with God. And he's telling him, your natural birth counts for nothing. You must be born again. You must be born again from above. You must receive regeneration, the Holy Spirit. Do you understand this? Salvation is a supernatural work of God. You're spiritually dead in need of him bringing you to spiritual life. And you will know that you are saved when you see evidence in your life 
of that supernatural work. You will know that someone in your life is a believer when you see evidence in their life of a spiritual work. When you see evidence of a new heart, evidence of a new spirit. Let me give three examples that the Bible talks about of some of the evidence you'll see of this regeneration. Evidence that there is a new creation, that you've been born again. One is this, that there'll be a love for God and his people. A love for God. Now, that's an important word there. Because there's plenty of people who say they believe in God. But there's a difference between believing that God is real and having a love for God, a desire to know him, and a love for his people. James says, you believe in God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's a great line. He says, you know what? So what if you believe in God? The demons believe in God. They believe in him stronger than you do because they've seen him and they know he's real. It doesn't make them a follower of God. It doesn't make them a Christian. So what if you believe in God? The evidence of a new creation, the evidence of regeneration is that there's a love for God, a desire for God, a love for his people as well. 1 John 5, 1 says this way, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. Father referring to God, the children referring to us. That that is something that happens when you are given a new heart. There becomes this love for God. Not just a belief in God, but a love for God. Secondly, second evidence of regeneration would be this. A heartfelt obedience to God's commands. A desire to follow him. Again, 1 John is a great book for evaluating your faith. It says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Lest you misunderstand that. He's not saying you're never going to make a mistake, that you're going to be perfect all of a sudden. But he's saying the trajectory of your life is towards God now. You're not just going to continue in sin the way you once did. There's going to be a desire to follow God, and where there's sin, there's going to be repentance and turning back to God. That's evidence of regeneration. That where there's sin, there's repentance and a turning back to God. No one's going to just continue down the path of sin and go that direction if they have been born of God. So once again, we're talking about that salvation is a supernatural work of God. And that there's a need to evaluate, are there evidences in your life or in the lives of people you love more than just saying they believe in God because even the demons believe in God? Is there a love for God and his people that's growing? Is there a heartfelt obedience to God's commands? And thirdly, is there a growth in Christ-likeness as evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit? Jesus used that analogy of a, of a tree and the fruit that grows from it and how a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And the one who has been born again, the one who has the Holy Spirit is going to bear fruit. Here's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Is there evidence of growth in Christ-likeness as evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit? So first and foremost, can you look in the mirror this morning? Do you see evidence? Do you see evidence in your life? 
that this supernatural work of salvation has happened, this regeneration, that God has replaced the heart of stone, put a heart of flesh, put his spirit in you. Do you see a love for God and his people growing, a heartfelt obedience to God's commands, a growth in Christ-likeness? This is not something that happens right away, right? If someone gives their life to Christ, you kind of see the evidence over time and whether it truly was a supernatural work of God or someone just saying words without the heart. Do you see these things in your life? And do you see these things in the lives of those who love? My story is that I became a believer at 18 years old. I grew up going to church off and on. I would have said I believe in God probably. As far as I knew, God was a being up in the sky, you know. No one you could know or anything like that. And as long as I was a good person, that's all that mattered. But it was through a youth group that I attended as an 18-year-old before I went to college. And then the second day of college, after I went around and saw the parties at UConn and just everything seemed so fake compared to the, what, the reality of what I experienced that summer at that youth group, Second day of college, I knelt by my bed and I gave my life to Christ. I said, I know where I belong. It's with you. And there weren't fireworks. There was nothing amazing that happened. I just climbed into bed, went to bed. But over the next weeks, it was clear something was different. That I had this desire to know God that I had never had. That I wanted to read the Bible. And it was coming alive in a way that it never had. And I never never read the Bible, never wanted to read the Bible. Now all of a sudden it was coming alive and, and it was as if it was speaking to me as I read it. There was a desire to spend time with other Christians that had never been there before. There was a sensitivity to sin, that, that things in my life that before I had never thought whether it was good or bad, I'd just done. Now all of a sudden there was this growing understanding that these things were not good for me and not good for other people. And over time, it was clear that something had changed in me. Something was different. And it was not that someone was teaching me these things. It was just that God had obviously done something in my heart. And I was different. That I had been born again. That he had put his Holy Spirit in me. That I was a new creation. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. Do you see the evidence in your life? If not, let this morning be the day that you ask him to save you, to put his Holy Spirit in you, that you turn from sin and self-centeredness to faith in Jesus. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. That's the first thing that I want to make sure we see in the story of Ananias and Saul. But secondly, I want to say this, that God almost always uses people to bring other people to faith in him. Even though God initiated Saul's conversion, he chose Ananias. He sent him to this man named Ananias to be a part of Saul's conversion. Ananias was one of the leaders in Damascus. That's what we read in Acts 22. And so Paul stays with Ananias. and He stays with the Christians in Damascus to disciple him before he set off to preach the gospel. And we never hear from Ananias again in the rest of the Bible. Right? Never hear again about this guy. He shows up here in Acts 9. He gets mentioned by Paul in Acts 22. This man who is foundational to the conversion and discipleship of Paul, who became one of the pivotal figures in the history of the world, Ananias comes and goes. 
Where would Paul be without, without Ananias? Where would we be without Ananias? Without his obedience, without his obedience to God. That even though he's like, wait a minute, Paul, Saul, this guy who's here to murder us and here to take us off into prison, you want me to meet with him and pray for him and welcome him? Where would we be without Ananias' obedience? Think back on your life. If you call yourself a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for your salvation, if you have been born again, look back on your life. I would guess for most, if not all of you, there's at least one person, if not more than one, who were instrumental, like Ananias was in the life of Saul and Paul, someone who was instrumental in bringing you to faith in him. I mean, certainly sometimes God can use dreams or can use books or things like that. But usually it is an individual that is responsible, like Ananias was, for helping lead someone to faith in Jesus. Anyone ever heard the name Edward Kimball? So Edward Kimball, 1854, Sunday school teacher, one day went to visit a 17-year-old boy who was in his Sunday school class who had at that point showed little interest in God or religion. And during his visit with this young man at his job at the shoe shop, he led the boy into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that young man was a man named, who became known as D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody. So this, this, this Sunday school teacher reaching out to this 17-year-old boy who up to that point had not been interested in God led him to faith. And that man became D.L. Moody, who became one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world, sharing the gospel with over 100 million people, founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Moody Church in Chicago. And he preached around the world, and as Dwight Moody was preaching in England, he preached at the church of a man named F.B. Meyer, and Meyer credited Moody for, the one who he, for revolutionizing his ministry. That from that point forward, his ministry was changed. He became an author and a pastor and a speaker all around the world. And Meyer wrote many books, preached the gospel for many years. And as he was preaching, he inspired a man named J. Wilbur Chapman to evangelize. And Chapman became an evangelist as a result of Meyer's ministry. And Chapman began working with the YMCA, which was a much more of a Christian organization back in those days. And through the YMCA, he met a baseball outfielder named Billy Sunday who converted to Christianity and worked with Chapman on his Christian crusades for two years going around preaching the gospel. And at one of Billy Sunday's crusades, he had a man named Mordecai Ham with him who preached at Billy Sunday's crusades. And as he did, a 16-year-old boy in the audience named Billy Graham came to faith in Jesus. Some of you I know, came to faith because of Billy Graham. The difference that one life can make. I mean, how many of you had heard of Edward Kimball before I mentioned him this morning? Look at the legacy of what God used in his life because of his obedience, his faithfulness as a Sunday school teacher, sharing the faith with 17-year-old Dwight Moody. Look at the legacy that was left. Has anyone ever heard? Oop. 
three other names. I didn't put them up there. Sherry Engman, Carlin Banda, and Stefan Thibodeau. These three college students in South Windsor, Connecticut, in 1994, decided to start a youth group for the summer. And they invited all the friends that they knew. They invited my girlfriend at the time, and she invited me. And it was at that youth group that I came to realize that God was more than some being up in the sky, that being a Christian was not about just being a good person, that you could have a relationship with God, a relationship that I didn't have. And through that youth group, I started to pray and talk to God as if he was real. And it was through that that he revealed himself to me that summer of 1994. So that when I went off to college and saw just the emptiness of the party life, I I realized that he was real and I belonged with him. The difference that they made, and they never followed up with me, you know. They never tried to disciple and follow up. They just were faithful preaching the gospel for a summer. And here I am today, and here we are today, because of the faithfulness of three young people willing to do a youth group for a summer. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. It's not signing up for a club. It's not just something we do in our own power. It involves regeneration. God replacing our natural heart and spirit with his Holy Spirit, putting his heart in us. Do you have that evidence of salvation, of regeneration in your life? But secondly, he uses other people so often to bring us to faith, most of the time. And he wants to use you as well as an Ananias in the life of someone else, just like he used Ananias in the life of Saul. And maybe you'll stay just as anonymous as Ananias is to most people or as Edward Kimball is. But what if he uses you like Ananias to change the life of a young man named Paul or Edward Kimball to change the life of a man named D.L. Moody? Listen, there's nothing... Nothing greater than being used by God to save someone from eternal separation from God. You think of how much we look up to people who are in the rescuing field. People who rescue firefighters, who rescue people from burning buildings. Doctors who rescue people from death. This is above and beyond that. This is rescuing people from eternal death, eternal separation. And God wants to use you in the lives of other people the way he used Ananias with Saul. As Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's for all of us. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and lead people to faith in me. For Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And so God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
that word reconciliation implies that there's a breach in a relationship between us and God. And so God sends us out as ambassadors to implore people to be reconciled to God. Again, no one is a Christian just because they're born into a Christian family or because they go to church. Salvation is a supernatural work of God by which he puts his Holy Spirit in us, gives us new life, and we're born again. Again, I implore you this morning, be reconciled to God in the words of 2 Corinthians 5 there. If you think that you are right with God because you're a good person, you're wrong. The only way we're right with him is by confessing that we're not good people, that we need a Savior, that Jesus died for our sins, that he took the punishment we deserved, and that by putting our faith in him, we're right with God. If you do not see evidence in your life of salvation, you don't see a growing love for God and his people. You don't see a heartfelt desire to obey his commands and turn from sin. You don't see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, a growing in Christ-like character. If you don't see those things in your life, then this morning, turn to him. Ask him to save you, to put his Holy Spirit in you, that you might have eternal life. And if you have been reconciled, if you know that you are a believer this morning, let me challenge you on four possible ways that you might respond this morning. And can I challenge you this morning? We have connection cards in, those bullet- in our bulletin. If you could pull out that connection card and just write your name on this, I'm going to ask each of you at the end to drop your connection card in the box in the back, okay? So if you don't have a pen, there's pens in the back too. But I want to challenge each of you to consider these four things. First of all, can I challenge you to reach out in thanks to someone who was instrumental in bringing you to faith? Maybe they don't even know. Maybe they don't even know the difference they made in your life. Why not take an opportunity to thank them for the difference they made in bringing you to faith? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a teacher, a friend, someone you attended church with growing up. Take an opportunity to thank them for the difference they made. Secondly, write down the names of people you want to see God save. Pray for God to give you an opportunity to share your faith with them. You know, you can fill out that card, drop it in the back, box in the back. We'll pray for them during our prayer meetings. And you can put an X on the line if you don't want it made public. But we will pray for them faithfully. We have prayer meetings here at this church. And we will pray for your loved ones to come to faith. Can I encourage you to pray faithfully? Because you know what? If salvation is a supernatural work of God, what does that mean? It means we need God to do the supernatural work and we need to pray and ask God to do that work, to lift the veil that blinds people. So I encourage you, write down names on that connection card. Drop it in the box in the back. We will pray faithfully along with you for their salvation and pray that God would open doors to give you an opportunity to share your faith with them. Thirdly, can I encourage you to join the pre-service prayer team I send out an email every week to some individuals who pray for this service. And then there's people who show up at 9.30 in that room over there to pray for everything going on on a Sunday morning. Can I encourage you, if you want to be a part of that, recognizing that my words that I speak up here are powerless unless God is in this, right? 
It doesn't matter how eloquent I am. It doesn't matter how much time I put in to prepare these words. If there is no Holy Spirit power, if there's no anointing, if God is not preparing the hearts of people, then these words are meaningless. And so please, if you want to be a part of this, if you say, you know what, I will receive that, that email, I will pray for what's going on on a Sunday, I will pray if you want to come early, 9.30 on a Sunday morning to pray in that room over there, consider that a challenge this morning, that we might see God do that supernatural work of salvation. And then lastly, can I challenge you to consider teaching or assisting in children's church? That story I shared of Edward Kimball and the legacy he left as a Sunday school teacher, first through the life of D.L. Moody, all the way down to Billy Graham, all the way down to some of you this morning. What an opportunity you have in this very church to share the gospel with young people. What an opportunity that God has given us to share the gospel with the children of this church. You know, over the past year, these are the individuals who've been faithfully serving, and I just want to make sure that we appreciate and thank them. That Michelle's been leading, that Tim Cody, Janet Gary, Christina Hare, Ryan Warner have been teaching faithfully the children of this church, Annette LaJoy, Gracelyn Lacoste, Elliot McMullen, Ryan Will and Nate Stillman, Emily Timko. Hopefully I didn't forget anyone. But these individuals have been faithfully serving and there's a need for more. Right now, we have a K through fifth grade together, which is not ideal, but it's what we have right now with the numbers. It'd be great over the next year to see God bring more families and to be able to have the opportunity for a couple of classes. But again, I'm putting that challenge out there to you to consider if you're a part of this church, how can you serve? We have children's church happening during the sermon and closing worship time. People serve once or twice a month and I want to encourage you to consider that, to write it down on that connection card, to drop it in the basket in the back if you are interested in learning more, or you can contact Michelle if you want to learn more about that. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. Please look yourself in the mirror this morning and see if there's evidence of regeneration, evidence of that salvation. Are you growing in your love for God and his people? Is there a, a growing desire, a heartfelt obedience to God, a turning from sin, repentance ongoing in your life? Is there a growing in Christ-likeness in the fruit of the Spirit? And how could God use you like he used Ananias in the life of Saul, like he used Edward Kimball in the life of D.L. Moody? How could he use you to lead others to faith in him? What I'd like to do this morning, I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team's going to come up. And I wanted to consider if maybe a couple of you would be willing to briefly share a testimony of, of, of someone who led you, a way of honoring someone who helped lead you to faith. I would love to hear a couple stories of people. You know, we're going to come up. If you guys could come up, just do one song, and then we'll open it up. If, if someone wants to share, a couple of people want to share, just to honor someone who was instrumental in bringing you to faith in Christ as an encouragement to the body. So prayerfully consider that. We're going to have one song and then we'll open it up for an opportunity for sharing. Let me pray.
Lord, I pray first and foremost for anyone who does not see evidence in their life that they have been born again. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to them and save them this morning and put your Holy Spirit in them, that they might know you. We pray, God, that you would use us in the life of others to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that we might be used, as Ananias was by you in the life of Saul, to lead others, to disciple others, and to faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.